Let's, let's go ahead and, and this will be a nice jump into kind of what we're, what we're uh, talking about. Uh, just to kind of, as we set this up today, um, just to kind of give you a heads up, I think, of where we're going. Um, we're going to talk today about uh, the Savior, his first experiences in the temple. And this will be a nice springboard, actually, for the next few weeks about the last week of the temple. Or last week of the Savior's life. Uh, going forward and all the steps that, that went into that. Of which the temple ended up being a central figure in so much of this. Uh, because part of what we're going to find is it becomes really hard to talk about the temple without talking about its creator. And we're going to talk about the mortal ministry of the Savior and his physical body, his incarnation how that is wound into the temple so tightly because the temple is an expression of him. And it's an expression of heaven and the way that God does things as opposed to the way he does things here. Um, so the, this multi-step kind of thing we're going to be, um, when we talk about, so when we talk about, uh, just so just a, a kind of a step back, if we talk about our eternal Progression, the, the great plan of happiness. We're talking about one where we are always uh, progressing. In a sense, President Nelson isn't making changes as much as he is improving and moving us forward. We're not fixing things. We're taking the next step on our progression of. So we have the 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 restoration. We talk about well, there was the apostasy, and then there was the restoration. Has the restoration ever stopped? No, it continues. And we're watching this restoration, which means that we now know more today than we knew a decade ago. And, we, and, and this group of general authorities know more and understand better than the general authorities of the 70s and 80s, who acted to the best of their knowledge under the circumstances, but this is a more... It's, it's the, the continual restoration of the gospel will continue right up to the second coming. Okay? So, as a reminder, what we, we enter mortality. Uh, at some point, we are invited into the kingdom of heaven on earth. That part of the process of being a, a part of the kingdom of, of earth and heaven is that we are then transformed by endowments of power. When we fell, we fell up. The fall was an ascension. Uh, but we have fallen up into the world. Uh, and then what the Lord is giving us through the organization of the church and then especially in the temple are endowments of power designed to change us fundamentally who we are transform us into creatures that are used to living in earthly presence and are transformed into people who are going to be comfortable living in God's presence. President Eyring's talk uh, yesterday's session was exactly that, that am I going to be excited and comfortable because I'm about to be in the presence of the Savior or the Savior's about to appear and do we want to run? <laughs> Are we going to avoid? Now, I'm not ready for that yet. Okay? So, so the, the whole plan of happiness, since we enter mortality, enter the kingdom, we're then transformed by uh, endowments of power, and that enables us to then enter God's presence. No surprise there. So when, the, so when uh, both in the tabernacle and the wilderness and then the whole history of Israel is this design that says we're going to create a place that embodies the plan. We fell out of Eden into the lone and dreary world and now we're going to create an edifice that enables God's presence to be there so that we can then begin our turn back out of the lone and dreary world into, back into the presence of God. Past the angels, 
to stand as sentinels like the, the angels at the veil in the temple. We're going to be able to know the things that we need to do to step past those angels that stand as sentinels, come back into the presence of God. Okay, That's why of all things, we would be presented a metaphor in our current temples. Uh, historically, what happens in the temple drama is not what happened. <laughs> you know, Peter, James, and John were never in the garden. The, Adam and Eve weren't being given money. <laughs> it is, it, we're told er, very early on that Adam and Eve are, are symbolic of who? Us. It's our journey. It's our walking past there. It's our having messengers come and talk with us. It's, our, it's us. All the way through, it's us. And it's not an historic, but it's a metaphorical teaching tool to, to walk us back there. It's us and the way. It is. We're on, and, and, and that path from outside, outside in the parking lot, past the recommend angel, in there to be able to dress properly, to then walk into the endowment room, and then to be able to walk into the celestial room is the path, right? That's the way, and we are on the way, okay? So what we're going to find is historically what the Lord was doing in setting up temples back then that, that uh, existed was creating that path that would enable them to be back into the, the presence ultimately. So we've got the court of Gentiles. Once they get past the court of Gentiles, now they're in the priest court. And in a sense, you've entered the kingdom. You're gonna have what kind of things do you have to pass to get before you're ready to be in the holy place? Well, there's a molten sea, we got to be cleansed. Okay? In essence, the, the molten sea was not necessarily symbolic as much of baptism as much as it is more our washings and anointing. It's the cleansing. It is on the outside of the, in this building out here, I'm still in the profane world, meaning the non-holy world. I'm in the profane. Then as I am washed and cleansed, I've now stepped from there into the sacred. And I've crossed over the threshold into this sacred place. Okay? So I'm going to be washed and clean. Then I'm going to bring my oblations, my offerings. I'm going to put that on the altar. There. Once I've kind of been doing that inside the kingdom. And by the way, just a reminder, where's our brazen altar uh, today? Follow the ball. <laughs> where's our brazen altar today? Okay, does that make sense? Here's where we bring our oblations on the Sabbath and our offerings. Okay, this is that. This is it. This is the brazen altar. Where once we're in the kingdom, we have this chance to be washed and clean and to then offer up. Uh, the Savior is going to take this and add a greater significance at the Last Supper to it. He's going to alter that in a way. We're going to be talking about that in the next couple of weeks. He's going to alter all that. Okay, now in order to be transformed by the endowment, uh, some things have got to happen here. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over this, but Isaiah 1 kind of gets this... Uh, I'm going to just lay it all out here so you can just kind of see it because I don't want to spend too much time. Isaiah 1 is actually kind of a temple scroll talking about the process of the temple. And he's going to talk about first wash ye, make you clean, put away the evil. Once you get inside, then learn to do well, seek justice. And, and the response, you know, like... Uh, uh, Alma in the wilderness when he's talking about if you want to be baptized into this church what, what, what was the temple recommend or the baptismal interview in the Book of Mormon are you willing to do what mourn with those that mourn kind of, you know, right okay you're willing to do all that vindicate the fatherless plead for the widow are you willing to be part of this community and take care of one another 
Okay, then come, then we'll reason together. You, this process happens, you're cleansed, you become clean through all of that, and then you're supposed to go forward and be willing and obedient to eat the good of the land. Um, and by the way, if you refuse to do that, you get exiled. <laughs> That's the whole history of the Old Testament that we're going to be talking about. Uh, the, the history of the Old Testament is sin and be exiled, uh, repent and be gathered. <laughs> That's the Old Testament. So, so we're now going to be transformed. And so in the temple, now you get the holy place where the transformation is going to occur and you return to God's presence that, ha that has in it the, uh, the holy of holies, the mercy seat, ultimately is where God's presence is. That's where he lives. So in essence, they were creating in the temple a place where people could walk back into this place. And, and the first place we're going to describe this, this is Genesis 1. This is Genesis 1 and 2. This is the Garden of Eden. We're walking back into this place. Okay, does that sort of make sense? In the Nauvoo temple, they were literally pulling up bushes and trees and placing them for a while in the, in the garden room, in the garden area of the Nauvoo temple to demonstrate you're kind of coming back into the Garden of Eden. Uh, you're returning. We're coming out of exile in the lone and dreary world and be able to come back to live in God's presence. Okay? That's what the temple was. Only the difference was in the in under the law of Moses. Remember, was the fact. We, are we too loud, Wendy? Close to. I could move that down a little bit. Yeah, maybe move them apart a little. Yeah. How's that? Um, Let me move this here. Probably need to turn the All right. Let's see. Is that working? I think we're good. Okay. So you get. So anyway, that is the thing that's being suggested. The only difference in the law of Moses, of course, is the fact that we were talking about last week that um, under the law of Moses, they didn't want to go into the presence of God. They didn't feel like we're still Egyptian. We're not ready to handle this light and smoke and fire and stuff. We'll wait here. You go. Moses, you go back into the presence. We'll hang here. And he says, okay, then in the law of Moses, guess what will happen? Who gets to go into the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. The Moses figure is going to go back in there. You guys wait out there in the court, and then he will come out like at Yom Kippur. I'm going to come out of the Holy of Holies, out into the holy place. I will stand out here in the court. We will all uh, get down on our hands and knees, and he will say the Shema, God is one, our God is holy. And pronounce that, okay? So that was their, that was that's the background. That's the understanding that they have. The temple is a return to Eden. It's Genesis one and two. Okay. So questions on that? Yeah. Yeah, sin and sin, and you'll be Babel. You'll be scattered. Uh, accept the Lord and repent, and you'll be Zion. So the Tower of Babel, or Babylon, was the anti-temple. It was the anti-Zion, as opposed to Enoch's gathering and everything come, becomes one. Okay, <coughs> heads blowing up yet? Whoa. Okay. Alright, so with that said, then, so wouldn't it make sense then that when the Creator comes to earth and he takes on a physical body, where would he be most closely associated and where would he feel the most home? In the temple. Okay? This is a this is a temple built to the worship of Yahweh. And Yahweh comes in mortal form to his temple. And so, let's walk through some of those early experiences. 
Okay, so our first experience is, so he's born in uh, Bethlehem, five miles away. Uh, after 40 days, Mary and Joseph are now going to bring Jesus into the temple. Okay, why, why did they wait 40 days? Why did they go in the first place, but, uh, but then why 40 days? Yeah. First of all, she needed to be purified. She, I mean, I guess she, they really didn't need her for what they're about to do in here, but, but she was going to be there anyway, so they had to wait 30 days for her purification. Remember, purification and being purified and cleansed doesn't mean you're sinful. There is sinful, and then there is just unclean. And you could be unclean with touching dead bodies, and, and menstrual periods and stuff like that, or birth. Okay, so she was unclean for 30 days, and so she's going to be purified and clean. Okay, all right, now, she, now she's in a place to kind of travel. You know, she's, she's young and strong, and this is her first baby, and you know, okay. So now, what purpose would there be then in taking Jesus into the temple? Also, it's the first son that they were given to God. So what about the first son? He was to be he was symbolic, but he's also to be presented to God, given to God. Right. It's almost like a tithing in a sense. Okay. Okay. So there is. So, so here's, here's the deal. Because, see, we want to look at this as presentism, which is, present means we see it through current eyes. And as current Latter-day Saints, without an understanding of this, we'd go, well, why would they take him to the temple? And we'd say what? To give, him. give him a name and a blessing. That's right. And get all the family in there, and we're going to see if we can't get 50 guys in one circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 50 guys with like one little finger. Yeah, I got his head. Yeah, yay. Okay. And then the baby's going to cry, and we're going to bounce him up and down. It's going to be that. <laughs> This was not that. <laughs> this wasn't give him a name and a blessing well, moment. They were fulfilling the law of Moses to bring, they had to bring a sacrifice, right? Ah, okay. Yeah, here's the problem. Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, what is ever the first to open the womb among the Israelites of human beings and animals is mine. It is that tithing. The firstborn is mine. Okay. They could pay a, uh, how do you say it, in exchange for so they could keep it. Ah, hold on, okay. Watch this one then. Okay, now, here's the, so this was going to be everybody. Then, then what happens, the Levites, because they refused to follow the golden calf, became the temple priests. Remember, we have, a, we have an instance of this, that how did, how did Samuel become a priest in the temple? He was the firstborn, okay? And mom brings him in, and so he's presented, okay? Now, uh, the Levites, in refusing to follow the golden calf, became the temple priests instead of all firstborns, okay? So now what do we do with all firstborns? Because it's in Exodus. God said it. What are we going to do? There was required, was called a pinyon habin, the redemption of the firstborn of five shekels. So there was a ceremony where, where uh, mother and father are going to bring the firstborn into the temple and, and they find a Kohen, uh, one of the priests. And they're going to approach the priest and they're going to say, this, is, this child has opened the womb, this is the firstborn. And the priest is going to say, do you want... The, do you want the child, or do you want the? Uh, you're going to offer the child or the shekels. Five shekels, and generally, in most cases, they're going to say, "I will offer the shekels and keep the child." Unless you're really poor, and then what are you going to offer instead of shekels? Turtle doves. Okay, there's a way to kind of off that because I don't have the money but I got the birds and we're going to use how they're using the birds maybe as a sacrifice at some point I don't know 
including if the firstborn is a female? Or it's not as a, not the female. It's just the male. Mm hmm. Yep. Okay. So in a sense, this firstborn was going. We're looking for a firstborn that's going to open the womb. The symbolism of that is what the firstborn that's going to open death. This is this is that symbolic moment that there will be a firstborn that will be the first first fruits of re resurrection, kind of thing. Okay, all right. So this is called Pijan Habin, uh, the redemption of the firstborn. So they're going to do that. So here's so I want you to picture that. Yeah, Daniel. So, so the womb is not the symbol of death; it is the deliverance from the womb. That's right. We're trapped in here. Yeah, this is the one. Yeah, and we're going to walk through the. Sh you're getting it. There's so much symbol symbolism here. We don't have a chance to get to. But the mother's going through the the valley, of the shadow of death, and out of that comes this rebirth, this birth, and that is symbolic of what's about to happen. You know, in, in about three decades after this. Okay. Or is it uh, the introduction into mortality, which is eventually? It's that too. You get both of those. The symbolism. So that, that's where you want to think. It's like, look at the, it's like, like we're talking about Jesus' parables. Look at these and say, what is the symbolism behind what, what is being done here? And you're going to see great little lessons come popping out. Okay? All right. Um, so, so that's what's happening. Now, so traditionally then, Joseph is going to be holding the baby, and Joseph is going to then present it to Simeon. And and then what's going to happen is that there's going to be a uh, a, a blessing. He's going to be inspired to pronounce a, a blessing on this baby, and it has to do with the redemption of Israel. It's quite a story, but I want to focus today not so much on what he says, but there is this very cool moment when and the, the way Luke, the writers of Luke are describing this where he then the, the priest then turns to Mary who's standing close by and this is really unusual because this is about the baby and now there's direct knowledge about to be given to Mary Simeon blessed them and then he turns to Mary, his mother, and he says this. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign to be spoken against. This child, in essence, the world will be judged about what they do with this child. How do you respond? How do you react? What do you do with this child? Why? So that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Our hearts will be revealed based on what we do with this child. It's this, it's this touchstone. You want to know where you are? What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Embrace him, reject him, love him, mock him, avoid him, dishonor him, praise him. Your heart is revealed by the way that you respond to this child. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, what? Yeah, yeah, but but what you can't do is be indifferent. You may intellectualize him, you may scholarize him. But the indifference is actually a rejection. Yeah, and the rejection then reveals your heart. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Now, I tend to think, by the way, uh, the the one thing I will mention this is this is one of those the uh, the technical scholarly term for this. This is a Lucian double. And that is in, in, in Luke, every time you get a male thing, 
you get a female witness. So I'm, I'm actually leaving out because of where I want to go with this, but right after Simeon comes who? Anna. Anna. So you get two, you get a male and a female. You ready? You get a male witness and you get a female witness. Anna becomes a female witness to the birth of the Savior. Okay? And the blessing of the Savior. The, 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 firstborn, the firstborn has arrived in the temple built to the firstborn. <laughs> okay? I love that. But it's going to be a male witness and a female witness. And Luke is going to all give you, there's like five or six or seven examples of Lucian doubles of male and female together, both sides. Okay? So, and this is one of them. So Anna is going to come right after this. But the other witness here is, is who? Mary, in being told, your own soul will be pierced with a sword, in essence is saying, you will be a witness when? To his crucifixion. A, pierce will, a sword will also pierce you and you will be a witness from beginning to end. I think that's why this is directed to Mary. We think Joseph doesn't live very long. Remember the lifespan is about 30 years. And that Mary would be a witness. So that's why as I was listening to the law of, of witnesses being altered and, and I think restored to where it needed to be in the church last week. I like this idea because the Lord was already setting up female witnesses. By the way, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Yeah, yeah. Women have always been witnesses and should be. Love that. Okay. But, but her response to that when I, when I talk about the, um, the writers of Luke, I think Luke had, whoever that was that wrote Luke, had a variety of input, but you get this little insight. Oops, did I leave that out? Apparently I did. The last line to that is, and Mary kept these things in her heart. How would, how would the writer of Luke know that? He somehow knew her heart. How? Probably from her. I'm guessing that the writer of Luke, because there's a lot of intimate details here with Mary, Mary had some input, I think, into Luke. I think she did. Okay, now. So... How does our reaction to Jesus... Oh, man, we're going to have to hurry. How does our reaction to Jesus reveal our hearts in, in our reaction to that? Well, let, let, me, let me have this answered by... Uh, oh, ooh, boy, that was a good one, too. How does that mirror our reaction to the temple? Yeah. How does our response to and reaction to the temple reveal our hearts? If we're going to, if we're going to intertwine the life of the Savior and, and the structure of the temple and how we respond to Jesus reveals our heart, how about the way we respond to the temple? What does that say about our hearts? Well, the temple is a metaphor for us as well as it is for the Savior and the church and all this other stuff. And our heart... Uh, is ultimately a metaphor for what we long for, what we love, what we want. And that's why the, one of the marks is over the heart. Yes. You know, it's, what, it's what we are about. It is our identity, and that's the great mystery. Is who in the heck are we? Right. And as we go through the temple, everything in there is resonating with your heart. It's saying, this is you. You know, and it, it peaks your attention and your interest you want to know more because you sense it's about you yeah your happiness 
when you talk about in the holy of holies too, ultimately that is happiness there. The plan of happiness is how do you get there? You know, it's the plan of salvation. I'm talking too much, but no, you're right. But but what? How we respond to that? Do we go or not go? Do we go and sleep? Do we go hurriedly? Do we go and linger? Do we go and ask questions? Do we go confused? Do we fail to prepare? You know, how we respond. The, the temple, like the Savior, stands there and reveals our heart about these things. And it's our response. It's in our behavior. Um, so along with that, let, let me go to Elder C.S. Lewis. Who said... What I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A, great, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. <laughs> Or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and kill him as a demon. Or you, or you can call at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. <laughs> I think that's, I always thought that was magnificent. Well, he was just a really good guy. Oh, he was a really good guy proclaiming that he was, that a new kingdom was come, come and that he was the son of God. What's that? Where did Elder Lewis say this? Uh, this is actually from uh, Mere Christianity. Yeah, if you ever want to get the kind of full context, if you'll just put C.S. Lewis poached egg <laughs> in Google, I'm pretty sure it'll jump right out at you. <laughs> okay. All right. So. So you poached this book? A2 Brute. Okay, so let's get to the next one. There's a, there's a couple of things I want to kind of point out here. Um, so we have this experience with, with um, Jesus in the temple as a child. And he has two witnesses uh, as well as his mother uh, and Joseph uh, attesting who, the, who he is what he's going to be, and this happens in the temple environs. Okay, now Luke 2 says, His parents went annually to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Now, um, what does this say about Mary and Joseph? They're very devout. I remember as, uh, as I was growing, one of the great things that I learned from my dad uh, is that we were living in Utah and, and he and I would go uh, to general conference uh, together. I remember being very young and sitting in on those experiences. And then as I grew older, I tried to make sure that I would always go uh, to general conference. And so on Sunday, on Sunday mornings, I knew exactly where I needed to be to be able to get in line for the afternoon session on Sunday morning to get into the tabernacle. There was a which door, what time. I got really good at that and just had these great experiences about being in the tabernacle because uh, I wanted to be, because we'd be up in the balcony uh, up near the podium because from up on the balcony in the old tabernacle you could sit there and look right down on the brethren and play general authorities, you know, because back then there weren't that many. You know, you could count them. Oh, there's, 
you know, there's Bruce McConkey, and there is Harold B. Lee, and there is, and just had some great experiences. And, and one of the great moments for me in my testimony in Prophets was seeing Harold B. Lee come in and a talk that he gave uh, shortly before his death that just fired me as a teenager uh, and bore testimony to me that he was a prophet. Okay. Um, so, but his parents going annually to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. So many of those in Babylon uh, and the Dysphoria out in Egypt or um, Corinth or something like that, they were out there, they were Jews, but they didn't go to, Jer they didn't go to Jerusalem for Passover annually. They might do a lifetime pilgrimage once, but for these guys to go every, to go annually gives you an idea of how devout they were in Nazareth. Which makes sense because remember that Nazareth was populated by the most devout Judeans who had come up to reclaim under the Hasmoneans. Different story, but anyway. So yeah, they're very, very devout. And when he was 12... I would believe he was going with them every year. But now when he's 12, and, and by the way, if you're, if you're now 12, 13-ish in current Judaism, what happens with you now? Bar mitzvah. bar mitzvah, sure. And there was a certain sense that we don't think they were, they were doing a bar mitzvah back then, but it's very, very similar in the fact that 12 was now adulthood. You were now reaching that age of adult. And that means that now you had been studying Torah, and you'll be able to read it and understand it. And now, how are, the, how are you going to know that you're an adult Judy, uh, uh, follower of Jehovah? Well, you're going to have to go through examinations. And people are going to ask you questions. Uh, and that's kind of this test. Have you arrived? So even in a, in a current bar mitzvah, they're going to have to stand up and they're going to have to be able to read part of Torah in Hebrew to prove you, you can read this. Well, these are people primarily speaking Aramaic, maybe some Greek up in Nazareth, but now they've got to come down and read Hebrew from the, from the Torah scrolls. That's a big deal. Okay? So, so what's going to happen now is when he's 12, he's going to go up as according to custom. The feast ends, Passover ends, Passover lasts about a week. And as they were returning, the boy remained in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. Um, now, I, I remember a time when our kids were young and we packed up everybody, got them in the car, drove home. And after we got home, we got a call that said, um, McKay's here still at the church. <laughs> Busy day. Yeah, uh, uh, that's okay. We're bringing him home with us. Okay, thank you so much. We're forgetful parents. <laughs> um, that's not what was happening here. This isn't a matter of them being forgetful parents. As an adult, um, let's see. Boy, I'm running out of time here. I'm going to hop over this. Oh, this is really good. Uh, oh, uh, maybe I will. Okay, hold on. What's going to have to happen here is that we're now going to begin to frame Jesus' adult life, and I want you to picture him between two Passovers. There's a Passover at the beginning and there's a Passover at the end. And his entire life text takes place between these two Passovers. I want you to see the, the, uh, the bookends, if you will. Passover was about celebrating the preservation of the firstborn and coming out of Egypt. Okay? So Passover was all about the children of Israel coming out of there and, the, and, they, and their firstborns were saved and the Egyptians' firstborns were killed. Had Jesus come out of 
Egypt? Sure he had. Right at, but between the time when Herod was killing the, the firstborns, they went off to Egypt for some period of time, and then they go to Nazareth. Okay? So he also has come out of Egypt. Uh, he comes with a large group of friends and family. Think about what happens at his last Passover. Does he come with a large group of friends and family? Certainly he does. They leave without him. At the last Passover, and again, as we start talking about the last week, they're, they're all going to come up there to Jerusalem together. Jesus will remain at the crucifixion and death, and they will leave without him. After three days, they're going to return to find him. So they're without him for three days, and then they're going to rediscover him back in Jerusalem. First Passover and the last Passover, same thing. Those around him are astonished at his questions and answers. Happens when he's 12. What conversations do you think his disciples and apostles had with him after the resurrection? What was that? What was that like? Where did you go? What do you remember? What was the experience? What? 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 <laughs> come here, Thomas. Come, come, touch my side here. Okay? And, and, there is, and both at the first Passover and the last Passover, what happens? I'm going to tell you about my father's business. This first Passover, I'm learning how to do it. I'm about it. I'm asking them questions. I'm learning that last Passover, your job is now to go out into all the world and baptize and preach the gospel. So, what's happening here then? Uh, the parents thought... He was among their company of travelers and they went a day's journey and they looked for him among their relatives and acquaintances and they could not find him. This wasn't Mary and Joseph just going up on their own. They come out of Nazareth with a large temple group and they're all coming down to Passover together. So their relatives and their friends family and friends of Nazareth and they're all kind of coming together and so it makes sense it's like and he's probably hanging out with other boys that are 12 and doing his thing and everything so we're all going to be leaving you know the bus is leaving you know Monday morning and we're out of here okay we just assume he's going to be there and he's not there because he still is about the business he is in a sense he is as close to home as he ever will be and that is in the confines of the temple so he's going to hang around uh, they couldn't find him after three days they found him in the temple sitting among take them three days to find him uh, sitting among the teachers listening and asking them questions Joseph Smith's translation adds and he was asking them uh, they were asking him questions that makes sense both from a, I have knowledge, but also he's being questioned to see how much he really knows. And they're astonished at his level of understanding. Uh, that's not bad. That's not bad for a stonecutter. Carpenter. He knows far more than he should. Yeah? There's things about this story that's always bothering me. Yeah maybe we're not getting the whole story because the Savior was perfect and I don't think he would have stressed his parents out. There must have been more to it. And also, I cannot imagine how they, the parents felt because they had to know they had, they had, we're all responsible for our children who worry about us. But they knew they had a special yeah. to raise this child a certain way and not to know where he was. It must have just failed. There had to be some understanding there. Maybe Joseph needed to get back 
uh, yeah, to, to run the business. We've been gone for a week, and he's going to travel back with family. And yeah, we don't know the. It'd be one of those little uh, millennial movies that we can watch. Probably give us more information. <laughs> You think he's being 12? Uh, yes, he was a 12 year old. <laughs> and he had great understanding and everything, but probably he was captivated in a way once he was in the temple with these men and the yeah. It, it's a little bit, there, there's some Catholic traditions that are out there very fun about his childhood. It's like kids would, kids would uh, try to bully him and he, he would zap them. <laughs> They try to beat him up, and he'd wither their arm, and then they're going to be humble. So then he fixes their arm. You know, there's this, there's a whole set of mythology that comes out of Jesus as a child. It's kind of funny. Okay, um, what do I got? Almost fifteen. Okay, all right. Now again, his mother's going to. This is where this comes in. This is where his mother keeps all these sayings in her heart. She watched. She learned. Okay, and she remembers. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. To this sister's query about how he might have stressed out his parents, he answers that when his mother says, Why haven't you dealt with this thus? And he says, Would you not that I'd be about my father's business? And he, what he's saying is, I know you have a priority list for me, but I have a priority list that's a little higher for my father, and sometimes that's going to conflict. And it is not sin for me to follow my father's commandments, even if that makes it yeah. complex and inconvenient for you. Right. But, you know, and also being 12, he probably could have done some things on his end to go, Mom, I'm going to hang around for a little while. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a very 12-year-old thing to do to, to kind of get, to, uh, wander off uh, on that. And not communicate really well, yes. Right about the time that boys get to about 12, 13, they stop communicating and start grunting. <laughs> How's school? <laughs> you hungry? <laughs> Have a good day? <laughs> Anything going on? <laughs> um, th th this is... Uh, in a sense, the best archaeology is that the temple complex, looking down on the temple, looked something like this, and there were these areas over here. A number of archaeologists have put the, the conversation that he might have talked, even to the great uh, Rabbi Hillel, who, who uh, in my research says he might have been, it was shortly before he died, would have been in the temple. Um, and they think it would have looked something like this, and, and this group, archaeologically, they even put it that this little figure in blue is about where Jesus would have been talking to, to people here, somewhere in that area, because this is where that discussion happened. So it's right, it's right over here. Okay? And then you get these courtyards in here, but there, there were these rooms. They're not always sure what was going on in these rooms here. The chamber, the hearth, for instance. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Okay? All right. Now, I want to kind of, our, our, our final experience, uh, kind of pre, uh, before Jesus actually kind of begins his mission. And I want to come back to this, um, and it just was fascinating to me. Um, we've talked before in here about the fact that we now, that most scholars almost completely agree that the first gospel available was Mark and that Mark in a world where literacy among the wealthy was about 5% among the really poor it was probably about 1% these people couldn't read so even if you had a written book of Mark to portray the gospels uh, they're not going to be able to read it anyway so we've talked over and over about the fact that so the first uh, so Mark is first what probably a performance Mark is a play it's presented as a play it's written as a play 
And if you see, and the more that you begin to see Mark as a play, as a performance, then things are going to jump out you. And I want to give you a really, really good example of Mark as a performance. And it has to do with Jesus leading up to his, his next experience in the temple. Okay? And, and it's striking. Okay? Uh, as I was reading this, this to Cindy the other night, I just started laughing because I thought this is so good and it's so indicative of this and how it would have been presented. So uh, this has to do with uh, Jesus uh, after, immediately after the baptism with John. He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Uh, the, the Greek word, side note, the Greek word for temptation, tempt, the Greek word is, uh, it's like paratza. And it's where the word pirate comes from. It's to take something from somebody. It, you're going to take it. Okay? And also along with it, it's also to prove yourself. You've got to prove that you can prevent things from being taken from you. Okay? So it's like this temptation is a, is a paratza. It's a pirating. So this moment of the temptation of the Savior in the wilderness is, is Satan coming and trying to take from him kind of his divinity or his mission, or his virtue. Yeah, he's going to steal something. Okay? So he's, he's Jesus uh, led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Uh, he's tempted by the devil. Uh, and since he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter, the pirate, shows up. Arr, wants food. <laughs> kind of thing. Anyway. Anyway. So you get Mark. So that, that, that's, that's Matthew's version of this. And we like this. And this makes a wonderful sermon. Okay. I want you to see how Mark presents the same story. And think about it as a performance and how this would be acted out on stage. And it would look like this. And immediately after coming out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens part and a spirit like a dove descending on heaven. And the voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That moment happens. And then it says, And right away, the Spirit drove him into the desert. And he was tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days. And then I love this line. And he was with wild animals and angels ministered unto him. Okay, now, put that in a play form with a bunch of 14-year-olds. Can you, can you see this? You know, that immediately he's baptized. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And, what, and what's happening in the wilderness? He's surrounded by wild beasts. You know, and they're like snarling around him. You know, and, and I, I actually looked to see what kind of wild beasts were in the Judean wilderness and stuff like that. And it's a lot of, lot of wolves. There are some she-bears running around that Elisha could tell you about. But it's just like, it's mainly these pack of wolves. So it's like, picture a pack of wolves snarling around Jesus in the wilderness. And who's standing between... Jesus and the snarling wolves. Angels. Angels. Kind of this, you know, they're, they're like defending him from the snarling, you know, they're going to protect him from these wild beasts. Okay, you see that? By the way, if you are Jewish and you're reading this story of Jesus in the wilderness surrounded by wild beasts, what picture, what story from your Old Testament history might come to your mind? Daniel in the lion's den. Absolutely. It's that same kind of... A angels protecting you from being attacked by wild beasts. I think that's magnificent. Okay, now, if you want to go one step metaphorically deeper than that, it could be that Satan brought the pack with him. And it might not have been a pack of wild beasts, wild beasts. It might also have been a pack of the third of the host of heaven that followed him to attack. Okay? Now, in any way you paint this, this is dramatic. And depending on how you want to choreograph that on stage, that's, that could be quite 
uh, an action moment <laughs> of these angels fending off the wild beasts while Jesus is being beset in the wilderness. So, depends on which version you like. Do you like the Matthew sermon version? Why he went, the Spirit led him into the wilderness and he was then tempted by the, Satan the pirate that's going to try and take his virtue from him. Or, <laughs> you get all this kind of thing and it's just, to me, it, if, if you're, if you're going to teach uh, a group of 12 year old little boys, which version might you use? <laughs> this is almost as good as Ammon cutting off the arms. Well, I think this would be good too for people that are totally literate because they are visual. Sure, they live there. They know. Th they've seen wild animals. Sure, sure. And so, if, if this is going to be presented on stage as a play, that's pretty awesome. Okay. Anyway, I just thought it was a great visual. Uh, anyway, uh, so in the final part of this, so what we're going to get is that, uh, and let me set this up. Um, I showed last time, this is, this is the Arch of Titus uh, in, in Rome, not far from the Colosseum. And remember, we have the, the, these implements here. We have the menorah being hauled back by the, the Jews, or by the Roman army after they've conquered Jerusalem. And they're hauling all this stuff back. Here we have the tables of showbread, uh, table of showbread right there. Um, and th those implements of the temple. They destroyed the temple. They took the stuff out. Okay. And, but, you ever wondered what these are? Those are trumpets. Those are the silver trumpets of the temple. Okay? Now, the significance of the silver trumpets uh, is that they play an important role here. Okay? And that is that Jesus is taken, according to the, the last temptation here, he's taken to the pinnacle of the temple. Okay? And that pinnacle of the temple, we believe, whoops, is right here. A lot of, don't know whether it was southwest corner or southeast corner. It makes sense to me that it's the southwest corner because right, if you go right down to the bottom here, there's a whole row of shops. This is where most of the people would be. If he's on the other corner, it's the Kidron Valley. Nobody's going to really see him much. So probably the southwest corner. He's up there on top. And this is where the trumpeter trumpets. And he announces that it's time for this afternoon sacrifice. It's time for a lot of things. And so it's like this is the signal coming up here. Now, all of this, uh, even though a bunch of this kind of is still there, this top part was thrown down. And it's one of those places that we have. And, and if you kind of stand on an overlook, this is a photograph I took, um, is this chunk of rock right here and this inscription. And that inscription uh, says, this is the place of trumpeting. Okay. This is the place of trumpeting. So uh, there's a, there's a, a ch we, we look at something like this and we say of all the possibilities where Jesus might have stood and might have been, there is an outside shot. Who knows that th this is open to a possibility because this place, this rock, this place of trumpeting is down straight down from here and it, and it sits down here uh, and you can, you can see it really clearly from from place, okay? Um, and the Spirit led uh, him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. So they had this little recessed place where the trumpeter, and there's a silver trumpet, okay? Now, why might that have, why might that have moment kind of been important? Because if, you, if you're thinking Jewishly and you're looking in the first century for help from these oppressive Romans, then one of the scriptures that would be quoted uh, would be coming from Malachi. 
Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Wow. So what a dramatic moment that might have been for missionary work, for suddenly Jesus stands on the pinnacle of the temple, hurls himself off, the angels then catch him right in the middle of the marketplace where all the pilgrims and the stores and everything are. That would have been a pretty great marketing moment. <laughs> and, and the messenger of the covenant has come to the temple. So the, the uh, part of the, the temptation on the part of Lucifer was to try and set him up to use all of this to suddenly make a big impression. You can see why it might have been a little bit sympathetic to that. Okay? All right. So, anyway. So, let me just just finish with this then. Again, I think from the the, uh, Savior's standpoint, His life, His mission, His ministry, His prophetic life prior to coming to earth was forever bound in the temple. Whether it was the Garden of Eden, whether it was Mount Sinai, whether it was the tabernacle, doesn't matter. His life, his mission, his purpose was forever twisted in and bound to the temple tightly. So when we start, starting next week, when we start going through kind of the last week of his life, and we're going to begin with a temple coup where he's going to capture his temple. He's going to take it over and claim it as his. And why the Sanhedrin had to move to get rid of him quickly because this was getting out of control. He had come to his temple and he had reclaimed it. Uh, should, be, should be kind of exciting stuff and I, and I look forward to that. Anyway, uh, I buried my testimony that as always... Uh, this, if this doesn't fire us to want to study and learn more about this, uh, we're just missing it. And it reveals our heart, I think, where we are. So anyway, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.